You are listening to audio from Creekside Community Church. If you'd like to learn more about Creekside, find out about our services and upcoming events, or listen to other sermons, please visit creeksidecommunity.org. So uh, I don't know how many of you stay up to date on discussions in academic philosophy. Uh, It's all the rage on TikTok right now. Um, I'm just kidding. Uh, But over the the past few years, uh, philosophers have had this sort of renewed debate about God's existence. In fact, there's a a new argument against God's existence. Uh, It's called the argument from divine hiddenness. And and some non-believing philosophers contend that God's hiddenness is in itself a powerful argument against God's existence. In fact, some go so far to say that the hiddenness of God effectively disproves God. Uh, Now, I won't go into the argument or the syllogism. It's clever. It's sophisticated. I think it's wrong, and that's why I'm up here preaching to you. Um, But what I find even more interesting than the debate is this idea that God's hiddenness is a new problem. Thousands of years ago, the prophet Isaiah said this, Maybe, I mean, I think he said it. There you go. (laughs) It's it's hidden. (laughs) Truly, you are a God who hides yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. For millennia, people have wrestled with God's apparent absence, his silence, his hiddenness. And, And not just people, God's people have struggled with that. God, if you are there, why don't I sense it? Why can't you make yourself more obvious? You ever said that? It's not a new problem. And the book of Esther speaks to this dilemma in a remarkable way. Today, we're wrapping up our series on the book of Esther. Next week is Palm Sunday when Christians around the world celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry. That's what we're going to be doing, and that launches us into Holy Week, and then Good Friday, and then Easter. But before Easter, let's talk about Esther. And now, if you have been with us, you might be thinking, Jeff, why are we talking about Esther? We literally just finished Esther. In fact, we read to the last part of Esther last week. What is left to talk about? Well, there is a feature of the book, and we've looked at it in passing, but it's, it's so prominent, it's so significant that it deserves a talk of its own. There's one thing left to talk about. It's the one thing Esther never talks about. You know what it is? God. Esther is the only book in the Bible that never mentions God. Now, before we go, huh, okay, and keep reading, we need to ask, why? Why? Do you realize how odd that is? It's odd. Think about it. None of the characters mention God even when they should. Think about Mordecai's speech in chapter 4, and he says, Esther, if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. And, and who knows whether you have not you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, almost instinctively, when we hear Mordecai's words, we think he's saying Esther, relief and deliverance will arise from who? 
from God. We think he's saying, Esther, God has put you in your position for such a time as this. The only thing is Mordecai doesn't actually say that. That's weird. But, but it gets weirder than that. No character mentions God, and every character seems oblivious to God. They don't even display an awareness of God. For example, in chapter 4, we saw all of the Jews begin to fast, and then Esther calls for a fast, and we assume that because they're fasting, they're also praying, except the text never says they're praying, just that they're fasting. We read about the dates of the Passover in Esther, and we assume the Jews are going to celebrate Passover, but it never mentions Passover. It's weird, right? It's weird. Here's the weirdest thing of all. The author never mentions God, never makes indirect reference to God. So it's one thing if characters act like they're secular, but what do we do when an author, a biblical author, acts that way? Now, do you think this is an accident? No. Now, this is very deliberate on the part of the writer. Well, why did they do that? I'll get to that, okay? But, but I think what we've seen in this series is that Esther shows us a God who works in surprising ways. That if you look up close at any part of Esther, you can't see God, but if you take a step back, you take this 30,000-foot view, you see all of these reversals and improbable coincidences and hints and allusions, and in a sense, the author is winking at us and saying, even when you don't see God at all, even when God seems nowhere, God is everywhere working in everything. That's the point of Esther. Now, on the one hand, that's comforting, isn't it? It's comforting that when you can't sense God, he's there, he's working. Let's look at the other side of the coin because it's also discomforting. Here's the other thing Esther teaches us, that it is not uncommon for God's people to experience God's absence. His absence. You know, reading through the Old Testament, you might get this idea that the Israelites were living in this enchanted world all the time, and angels are just flying around, and everyone's performing miracles, and they're all kind of levitating. But, but that's not the Old Testament. There, there are peaks that are miraculous, and then there are long periods where it seems like God is doing nothing. In fact, that is the period we find ourselves in, in Esther. That this period when Israel returned from exile was a weird period. Israelites come back initially and they rebuild the temple that had been destroyed. But you know, when Solomon built the temple originally, what happens? God's presence comes down visibly in a cloud. There's glory. There's a palatable sense of God's holiness. And then Israel returns. They rebuild the temple and we read, it's not clear. God's presence doesn't manifest in the same way. So the epicenter of God's holiness just feels different. God seems absent, and then God grows increasingly silent. God sends a, a few prophets after the exile, but by the time we get to, to Esther and right around the time of Malachi, God stops talking. And he stops talking for 400 years until John the Baptist comes on the scene. So what does that mean? Well, it means at least this, that God's people go through long periods in which the heavens seem shut, God seems 
absent. And so if you have ever experienced that, join the club. It's not a new experience. But the more distressing question is why? Why don't I sense God's presence in a more immediate, tangible Why would a God who desires a covenant with me and desires intimacy, why would he allow that? You ever grappled with that? Well, you're about to this morning. And I want to talk about it because the biblical answer is actually pretty complex. Why don't I always experience God's presence? Three reasons from the Bible. The first is sin. Sometimes we don't experience God's presence because, if we're honest, we don't want to. And if you question that, I think I'm going to prove it to you. Second reason is suffering. Sometimes, as God's people, we can be so overwhelmed with pain and despair that it's like a cloud that blocks the warmth and the light of God's love. Finally, and perhaps the most surprising reason is this, that the reason we might not experience a sense of God's presence is actually for our own growth and sanctification. And this experience is actually necessary for us to become like Jesus and for our faith to mature. So that's where we're going. Let's pray and then let's look at each of these reasons. God, your word says that you are ever-present help in time of need. We thank you that you are a God who dwells with us and in us. And in Christ, God, you say you have brought us near. And so I pray that that we would have a greater confidence in your nearness, even when we can't sense it. And Jesus, I ask it for your sake. Amen. Why don't I experience God's presence? Here's one reason I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm I'm an old millennial, and that will be revealed in this sermon illustration, but uh, I still think that The Matrix is like the coolest movie ever made. Uh, but in case you have, all the other ones are terrible, but the first one, that's, that's great. Uh, in case you haven't seen it, it's been 20 years, so I feel comfortable ruining it for you at this point. But Keanu Reeves, he plays this character, Neo, who is obsessed with discovering what's really real. Because as it turns out, he lives in this sort of digital fantasy world, controlled by robots who are feeding off the energy of humans. And, and so the whole movie is this realization that you're actually a slave and you have to break out of the illusion and live in reality even though reality is much more uncomfortable and challenging than the digital world in which you've grown accustomed to living. Now, that movie came out like Christians loved it, man. I mean, there were more sermons about the Matrix than the Bible for a few months there. Uh, I mean, they just freaked out because there's all these Christian themes, and Neo is like a Christ figure, and it really struck this chord of, of not wanting to live in an illusion, wanting to live in reality even if reality is uncomfortable. So fast forward 20 years, Keanu Reeves was just talking to some teenagers about the movie. And they had never seen the movie. And so he's talking to to three teenagers about it. And they said, well, what's it about? And he said, well, it's about this guy who lives in this kind of virtual world. And he really wants to know what's real. And you know what they said? They were confused. They said, well, who cares if it's real? Now, that tells you something about how teenagers look at the digital world now as opposed to the real world. But I think it's also instructive that as humans, I don't think our deepest concern is to live in what's real or what's ultimate, but just what feels good, what feels most comfortable. 
we don't want God's presence as much as we think we do. And maybe you object and say, Jeff, there is nothing I want more than God's presence. I would say there are so many examples in the Bible that would give you pause. Let's return to the question of Esther for a moment. Why does the author deliberately omit any reference to God? The answer is this, because Israel is a spiritually and morally compromised people. They don't want God. God sent his people into exile as an act of judgment. He cast them away from the land, away from his presence, and now what do we find? We find that some Jews are really comfortable living in exile. In fact, they're so comfortable living in exile that they've gone further into exile. They've gone from Babylon to Persia for the economic opportunity there. And now we find that they're intermarrying with non-believers and they've taken on an identity of the surrounding culture and they're hiding their own Jewish identity and they are comfortably assimilated because it's easier. They're in exile, and they are very comfortable in exile. In Deuteronomy, God talks about this time when he will send his people into exile, when they will walk in rebellion against him. And do you know what he says about that time? He says this, and surely I will hide my face in that day because of all the evil that they have done because they have turned to other gods. What is God doing in Esther? He's hiding his face. That's the whole book of Esther, is God hiding his face. That's why we never see him. This is a people that have hidden their faces from God. And now God has hid his presence from them. Here's the beautiful thing, though. God says in the very next chapter that the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when they're in exile, not because they're righteous, but because he's merciful. So so what do you have? You have a God who hides his face from rebellious people and yet delivers his people because of his promises. You put those together, what do you get? You get the book of Esther. Does that make sense? That's what we're looking at. For many Israelites, exile seemed easier than returning to God. And that is a recurring theme in the Bible. Think about what happens after God takes Israel out of slavery. Do you remember this? 400 years of oppression in Egypt. 400 years. God delivers his people. Did they experience his presence? Pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, going through the wilderness. Like 10 minutes after the exodus, what do they do? How could you do this, God? Right? They start complaining, and they complain like I would about the food. That's the first thing they complain about. They're like, we remember the fish that were free and the cucumbers and the the leeks. I love the little leeks, God, right? It's like, I mean, those Egyptians were tough, but the leek risotto, God, it was, (laughs) right? What does that teach you? That, That slavery can become a very comfortable condition to live in. Slavery to sin can become a very comfortable condition to live in. And pursuing God's presence can be a very uncomfortable place to live. Very uncomfortable. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, you have an invincible union with God in Christ. Your position in Christ is secure. The relationship is secure. That doesn't mean the relationship's healthy. 
even as a believer, you can turn away from God. And if you turn away from him, God will bring you back, but you will not experience close communion with him. It will disrupt your intimacy with God, and we do that whenever we think that the slavery and illusion of sin is more comfortable than living in reality. Who experiences God? What does Jesus say? Blessed are who? The pure in heart, for they shall see God. What a promise. Seeing God. Who sees God? Who ultimately experiences intimacy with God? Is it the one with the best arguments for God's existence? Is it the one who has amassed the most biblical and theological knowledge? Is it the one who does the most stuff in the world for other people, the most good deeds? No, it's the one, Jesus says, who is pure in heart. What does that mean? Well, if you were with us for our study of James, you know what it means to be pure in heart. It means to be single-minded. Pure in heart means you will one thing. You have one desire, one act, one goal in life, and that's to know the face of God. That's purity of heart. But as we saw when we studied James, our natural bend is not to be single-minded, is it? It's to be what? Double-minded. To be of two minds. To think we want God's presence, but to not want his purity. And remember what James says to double-minded people? He says, that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. We don't want communion with God as much as we think because it requires a single-minded pursuit of him, and that means losing things in our life that we love, losing our sin. That's the question here when we think about distance from God is am I desiring God's presence but not pursuing his purity? Everybody wants the blessing of God. They just don't want to lose the blessings of this world to get the blessing of God. Right? What are you willing to lose? Because to experience the presence of God and to follow him out in the wilderness, you have to give up control of your life. You have to give up control of your time. You have to give up control of your money. You think it's going to be easy to learn how to pray? That's an acquired taste. Are you willing to lose your self-importance? Are you willing to lose your lusts? Are you willing to lose the resentments that you've spent your whole life nursing? And the judgmentalness and the harshness, are you willing to lose all of that? This isn't very comfortable. In fact, it can be incredibly uncomfortable. Following God's presence into the wilderness is the best life. It is not the most comfortable. Because you have to believe that giving all this other stuff up on the other side of obedience, God's going to meet me there with something better. That's faith. This is an acquired taste. The presence of God is an acquired taste. Your flesh does not yearn for the presence of God. The Spirit of God in you does. It is an acquired taste. I like salad now with lots of meat and fatty dressing, but I like salad. I did not come out of the womb liking salad. It took 38 years, and now I like salad. The presence of God is an acquired taste, and it takes time to build. As some of you know, I'm actually going on sabbatical for the first time ever this summer. 
and, and I'm going to be gone for May, part of May through part of August. But, you know, to be honest, one of the reasons I want to go on sabbatical is, is just because I don't think I have enough of a taste for the presence of God in my life. And I want to push myself in that area. It's not natural to fast, to spend time in silence and solitude, seeking the face of God and dying to your own wants and distractions and all of these things. It's actually kind of scary. And I think it's time for me to lean into that. I was so convicted reading about Jesus in the garden and, you know, how his disciples fall asleep when he's praying. Remember what Jesus says? Could you not even pray with me for an hour? Yeah, disciples, you couldn't pray in the middle of the night for an hour. (laughs) Do you pray at night for an hour? (laughs) You're holier than I am. I think I would have fallen asleep. This is an acquired taste, and the gut check question for us is what are you willing to give up to gain the presence of God? It's not going to be easy, not going to be comfortable, but it is worth it. So sin, just that the comfort of sin keeps us from the presence of God. Now that explains divine hiddenness in the book of Esther. Now we need to go beyond Esther. Because sin does not adequately explain God's hiddenness in our lives. This is complex. See, sometimes we don't want God's presence. Sometimes we earnestly want God's presence and earnestly want to seek him, and yet it feels like God is silent. Have you ever prayed and it just seemed like the prayer bounced off the ceiling and just hit you right in the back of the head? Like you're just getting nowhere with God. Well, well, the cold reality of life in a fallen world is that we can be following God and still not sense his presence. And you say, Jeff, do believers, are they supposed to feel that? Well, look at the Bible and how people pray. Job, in his righteousness, says, why do you hide your face and count me as your enemy? David, Psalm 13, how long will you what? Hide your face from me. Next slide. The sons of Korah, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? He-man, the Ezraite, that's a great name, Psalm 88. Maybe the saddest psalm in the Bible. Oh, Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you, what? Hide your face. Now, four different people, four different life experiences, what do they all have in common? They write these prayers not as people in rebellion against God, These are the prayers of people earnestly desiring to seek God, obeying God, and yet saying, why? Why do you hide your face? These are the prayers of the godly in their affliction, and apparently God accepts this kind of prayer. You know why? It made it into the Bible again and again. And that's very instructive for us, family, because there's a idea of the Christian life in America that's something like this. Before you know Jesus, life is hard. But then you become a Christian and life is good. And and therefore, a Christian doesn't need to be sad or depressed ever. 
In fact, if you do feel depressed, it reveals a lack of faith. There's some spiritual deficiency in you. And if depression remains or lingers, you need to look inside yourself and repent of something, and that's the only solution. Now, if you have heard that brand of teaching, let me say this as nicely as I can. It's wrong. It's wrong. Do we have profound hope and joy in Jesus? Yes. Can sinful patterns of thinking and behavior drive you to despair? Absolutely. Yeah, sin can make you really sad. But, but Christians have a complex relationship with sadness and depression because the causes of sadness and depression are way deeper and way more complicated than sometimes we realize. And, and you know, Christians have just sort of known this for all of church history. So like Richard Baxter, 350 years ago, English Puritan. He said there's four reasons Christians experience melancholy, and that's what they called depression back in the 17th century, melancholy. And this is his explanation. He said your body can make you sad, your physiology. He said your personality, your temperament can make you sad. Some people are just more melancholic by nature, and you know who you are. I'm not one of them. I get sad and I eat a burrito and I feel better, okay? But that's not holiness, that's just my annoyingly optimistic personality. So personality is another reason, Baxter said. Fourth, he says that, that sinful thinking and behavior can make you sad. Fourth, he says demonic oppression can make you sad. And Baxter says that not all sadness and depression are rooted in sin. He says there's a melancholy that doesn't endanger the soul. But he says it makes it more troubling precisely because we don't understand the cause of it. Now, that's 350 years ago, okay? That's a very complex understanding of sadness, isn't it? And the reality is that the Bible is brutally honest about how disorienting and difficult it is to live in a fallen world, even when you're following God. 40% of the Psalms are lamentation, Psalms of lament, 40%. That's the most of any category. There's a book called Lamentations for crying out loud, okay? And so often in lament, there is an expression of divine abandonment. God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? And at times, this feels dark, doesn't it? And maybe it's jarring for you to think about believers praying that way. These are very dark prayers, Psalm 88 ends with the words, darkness is my closest companion. It's like a nine-inch nail song, but it's in the Bible, and it's a worship song. I mean, could you imagine if we sang that way? Like, I, I, Max gets up here with the team, we wrote a new song, darkness is my closest friend. Thanks for coming to Creekside. Go have a donut. Think about that this week, right? Like, that's, no, we wouldn't do that. The Bible does. It feels so hopeless, and it raises an important question. Is it okay for a Christian to pray that way? Is it appropriate? Because we know the theological truth, right? Paul says that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, right? So we know that God never abandons us in an absolute sense. God promises, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
So we know that's true. So is it okay to pray this way? Well, here's what these psalms do. The psalms of lament give you a vocabulary for grief and help you to bring things before God, everything you're feeling. And they give you a framework to say things to God that you might not otherwise feel comfortable saying, but that you need to say because it's where you're really at. Because the reality of living in a fallen world is this, that theologically you can know that God does not forsake you, and yet you will feel forsaken by God. You can know that God doesn't leave you, and yet you will feel completely alone. And God is so merciful to us that he knows that will be our experience in the world. He knows that we will cry out to him that way, and he actually gives us a structure in the Bible to do that. And what's beautiful about the Psalms of Lament is that they meet us at the depths of where we're going to be in following God and have a way of pulling us back out. And they teach you how to pray that because when you are spiraling and feeling abandoned by God, you are not going to be able to muster up prayers on your own to pray. And so when you don't know what to pray, God's like, I got you. I already taught you how to do this. Just start praying these. That's the mercy of God. And the question for us is, when you're following God, when you honestly think, I am trying to do what's right, and yet, God, I feel like you pulled the rug from under me. Right? I'm trying to please you. I'm trying to do something. It looked like everything was lining up for this decision, and then the decision blows up. You ever had that happen? Like, were you just trying to trick me, God? What was that about? When you feel that, and God says, in a fallen world, you will, he gives you a vocabulary of grief. He gives you a liturgy to pray. The question is, will you take advantage of it? When you're in that moment, the question is this, am I bringing my feelings of abandonment before God? Because as a Christian, there's only three ways you can deal with feelings, and two of them are really bad, and only one of them's good, Okay? As a Christian, there's three ways to deal with feelings. On the one hand, you can idolize your feelings, right? Some people, their motto is, I feel, therefore I am. Feelings determine reality. So whatever I feel is ultimate. And so if I feel sad, that means nothing will ever be okay again. And if I feel anger, that means I can never trust again, and I can never forgive again, and I can never forget. But, but that makes your feelings the final arbiter of reality, right? And that's God's role right? Your feelings are not God. And your ultimate allegiance is not to your feelings, it's to Jesus. So it's bad to idolize your feelings. It's also bad to repress and deny your feelings, especially your feelings towards God. Because you can live with this sort of unspoken hostility toward God that keeps driving you away when God is actually giving you a way to come back to you even when you feel hostile towards him. That's what he's doing in these psalms of lament. And so the only good way, the third way to deal with feelings is to pray your feelings. To pray them all to God, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And if you don't think that's okay, you need to go back and read the psalms again. Because they are jarring in their honesty, and there's a reason for that. It gives you a vocabulary for grief. So, second question, when you're feeling distant from God, am I bringing this before God? which, of course, in itself is a way of coming back to God, right? Now, it is somewhat comforting, <laughs> somewhat, 
comforting. To know that we will experience a sense of abandonment on this side of eternity. But, but it's somewhat comforting. Because the most natural thing to feel when everything in life falls apart and questions dissolve and to think, you know, if there is a God, he sort of has it out for me. That, that he's against me. And, and, and maybe you deny God's existence because the, the reality that God might exist is just too painful because you're just too disappointed with him. But the truth is this, that if you are in a season of faithfully walking with God and yet you feel dry and God feels distant, you are in the best company of all. Because who are you becoming like? Jesus. Jesus. In fact, you have to go through that to become like him because that's what he went through. Remember what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with what? Loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence, although he was a son, the one and only son, the beloved son from eternity. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is Sweating drops of blood, he is in such great distress. He says, my soul is sorrowful unto death. I am so sad, I want to die. That's what Jesus is saying. And he cries out to God and says, if there's any other way, give it to me. If there were ever a time when Jesus is feeling divine abandonment, it's as he is about to take the cup of judgment for our sin. And not only was God not displeased with his son. He was delighting in his son in that moment because that was the perfection of his obedience. That was the completion of his walk of faith was to go through that valley and come up the other side trusting God and doing it perfectly for our sake. Now, if Jesus, the perfect Savior, had to walk through that, who am I to say that I don't have to go through the same to become like him? In a sense, this is the fruition of our faith. Here's the thing. I, I think particularly when you become a Christian, there's this honeymoon period in your relationship with God. And I, I've just seen it so many times where people sense God's presence in this real way. And it's like every step of the way, they're almost walking by sight, not by faith, because God's just making it easy for them. Making these good decisions, getting blessed, getting blessed. Wow, this is working out. There comes a point in your Christian life where you're going to be dry. And then you're going to take a step of obedience and you'll still feel dry. In fact, there have been times in my Christian life where I had to make a hard decision and the Word said I had to make a hard decision and wise counsel said I had to make a decision and I made the decision and you know how it felt? Terrible. It felt awful and it felt awful for weeks afterward to make that decision. And it's only years later in retrospect I say, praise God that I made the right decision. But the feeling didn't come even though faith demanded that response. And the reality is this, you have to go through that for your faith to be perfected. Because if it's just God taking you by the hand the whole time, making it obvious, 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 so it feels good, feels good, feels good, 
Is that faith? At some point, that's sight. But when you come to the point where you are not feeling the blessing and yet you are walking, that's how you know that you actually look like Jesus. And that, Spurgeon said, that is God's covenant sign on his people that he walks through that. That's not what marks you as cursed. That's what marks you as his kid, as uniquely favored that you have to go through that. So take heart, family, if you're going through that. It's not the sign God's abandoned you. That's the sign that God has set his seal on you because you're walking through that to become like Jesus. And there is nothing more dangerous to the kingdom of darkness than a believer who will walk through things by faith and not by their feelings. C.S. Lewis said it in the screw tape letters. Y'all should read that book if you haven't. Anyway, that's another, that's another time. This conversation between demons, that's through tape letters. Here's what Lewis writes. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause, the cause of Satan, is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to be vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That's Jesus. You will come to that point in your Christian life. It's inevitable because you have to go through that point to become like Christ. That is the cross you have to bear for your faith to become like his. And, and that is so precious to the Lord. And, and here's the, the gut check question for all of us. Is this, am I waiting on a feeling to take a step of faithful obedience? Because the feeling might not come before, the feeling might not come after. You might have to wait on the Lord. But that is what will perfect your faith. And family, here's the good news. When you're going through that and it feels like God has forsaken you, you are most like Jesus. Do you know who's with you in that moment? In a unique way, Jesus. Because Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be right where you are. And Jesus never asks you to follow him somewhere he has not already gone. And so when you walk into that valley, Jesus is already waiting for you at the bottom. He's saying, I know. Think about what Jesus does to save you. Jesus lived in eternal, perfect communion with his Father. And as he goes to the cross, Jesus takes on our sin, and his sense of God's presence grows dark. Was there anyone for who that experience would be stranger than Jesus? The one who had lived in perfect communion with his Father from eternity. And yet he walks through that and is actually under the cup of God's judgment for you to bring you out of that and bring you back to God. No matter how low you go in the Christian life, Jesus is lower. He's already gone deeper into that abyss. He's gone to the bottom of it. And so he's waiting no matter how deep you go because he is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and he knows it better than you ever will. And he's going to bring you out of it. 
So wait on the Lord. Let's pray. And so I, I pray, God, um, and, and my heart, um, it's just especially, if God, those Christians, um, Lord, who have followed you and the darkness will not lift. And um, God, I pray for their relief, for reprieve, God, and I pray they would experience your goodness in the land of the living. And Jesus, I just thank you that, um, Lord, when we cry out to you in distress and our feelings of abandonment, you do not chastise us, Lord. In fact, you are uniquely drawn to us in that moment. That you resonate with it on a level that we can't begin to, to fathom. Thank you, Jesus, that you've gone all the way to the depths of our abandonment and below it to pull us out forever, Jesus. And we praise you for that in your name. Amen.